Amen. I want to start this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. We've been talking about and, and teaching a series on the Holy Spirit for a number of weeks. And we want to continue along that line a little bit further tonight. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, King James translation says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. If you're reading from the King James, you'll notice that the word gifts is in italics. Whenever you find a word gifts, uh, whenever you find a word that's in italics in the King James translation, it means that the translators added something to the original text to try to help us with our understanding. Well, they didn't do a bad job in this case, except for the fact that the whole 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians talks about things other than spiritual gifts. In the original, it reads like this, and you'll understand why they tried to add something to it. Now concerning spirituals, brethren, the word spiritual is in the plural. Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. The word spirituals literally means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Well, that's why Paul wrote what he did to the Corinthians. He didn't want them ignorant about anything pertaining to the Holy Ghost. And that certainly would apply to spiritual gifts or manifestations of the Spirit as they're more accurately called by Paul in, the, in 1 Corinthians 12. But I think you would have to agree with me. There's probably no greater subject in the church age outside of the Holy Spirit, the subject being the Holy Spirit, that there's greater ignorance of. And if Paul doesn't want us ignorant of things pertaining to, uh, pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, he would certainly want us to have understanding in what may be the beginning or the, the major point of lack of understanding or ignorance in the church age, and that is the dual working of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to John chapter 14. This is Jesus spending the last night of his time uh, with his disciples. This is at the Last Supper. And notice beginning in verse 16, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now I want you to notice what he calls the Holy Ghost. He calls the comforter the Spirit of truth. The Amplified uh, Bible brings out the sevenfold meaning of this Greek word that's translated comforter. It's literally the word paraclete. And the, the seven different meanings of that word, the seven different works of the Holy Spirit in us and for us, is our advocate, our counselor, our comforter, our helper, our intercessor, our strengthener, and our standby. The Holy Ghost is all of those things to us. But notice he says the world cannot receive him. You see that part of verse 14? Uh, verse, uh, what is it, verse 16 or 17, one of those verses around there? Whom the world cannot receive. Now I want you to notice that very specifically because the Bible makes a big distinction between the gift given to the world, and that would be the unsaved, and the gift given to the church. You may remember in everybody's favorite scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Well, he's talking about a gift then. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. So it says Jesus is the gift to the world. The Holy Ghost is the gift to the church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 gives us a... a tells us about when Paul first went to the city of Ephesus. I'm sorry, it's not chapter 16, it's chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we'll start, begin, uh, start reading in verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. He said unto them, notice how he says this, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Now, Paul obviously sees these people in the manner of life or the character of the people that he sees. Something about these people that he has just met leads him to believe that they're Christians. So he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He's making a, a distinction between receiving the Holy Ghost and believing. Now, what would the believing be? Well, 
believers are called Christians. Every time the Bible talks about believers, it refers to those of us that have made Jesus the Lord of our lives. And so Paul assumes from something about them, something about his experience with them, he concludes or makes an assumption that they're Christians. So he says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And then he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? Now remember Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. So here again is, G is uh, Paul's explanation or inquiry really as to why these people look and act like Christians, what do they believe? So he asked, unto what are you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Now notice what Paul says from there. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, folks, we don't know if he's talking about water baptism or not. He very well may be. This is a place where there would be plenty of water where he first finds these people, and so it's possible that he baptized them in water. But it's also possible that the baptism he's talking about is being made a part of the family of God. See, the Bible says by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. That doesn't have anything to do with water baptism. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing water baptism. I'm not against water baptism. I'm for it. But it doesn't determine whether or not you're saved. Even when Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, that's not a guarantee that he's talking about water baptism. He could very well be saying that to believe in Jesus brings you into the new birth and brings you into or it causes you to be baptized into the family of God. The word baptism just means to immerse or put into. It could mean being put into water, but it could also be, mean being put into the family of God. So it says here, when they heard about Jesus, remember Paul is the one that tells us in Romans chapter 10 that you can't get saved without hearing about Jesus because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he tells them, as simple as it is, he tells them that John talked about believing in Jesus who would come after him. So when they had heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, whether he's talking about water baptism or talking about being baptized into the family of God, it clearly means, obviously means, that they became Christians. In other words, they entered into the born-again experience that every believer enters into. And then following that born-again experience, following that salvation experience, then Paul lays his hands on them and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. We see some of the same evidence of it, them being filled with the Holy Ghost as we see in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Ghost came on the 120 in the upper room, they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Same example, same evidence. This is 20 years later, 20 years after Acts chapter 2, and we see the same evidence, the same work of the Holy Spirit operating in the church. So Paul laid his hands on them, and the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues, and they prophesied. Now I want you to look back with me also to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 tells us about the resurrection of Jesus. It tells us about how Jesus appeared to Mary first after his resurrection, told, him, told her to go tell the disciples that he would meet with them later on or appear to them later on. And here's the fulfillment of what he told her. Verse 19, then the same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. 
Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. If Jesus leads them to believe they are receiving something or going to receive something or receiving something at that time, and I don't know what else we could say would, would generate that or how we could deny that it would generate some expectation because he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. They have to be expecting something. From his words alone, they would expect the Holy Ghost to be given to them. But the change that this makes in their lives looks a lot like salvation. It tells us in Luke chapter 24, verse 52 and 53, it said they were continually in the temple worshiping and praising God. They were filled with joy and openly in the temple. Well, they're not openly in the temple here. It says specifically that they're assembled behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. Well, what happened to them that caused them to stop being afraid of the Jews? The Jews didn't lose power, did they? There wasn't anything that changed about the threat that the disciples perceived, at least, against them, just like they crucified Jesus. So what happened? Something changed. And the only thing we can tra trace it back to is this experience where John, more so than any of the others, gospel writers, tells us specifically what Jesus said and how he did it. He said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, being born again isn't usually talked about as a work of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus standing there before them, first of all, remember the criteria that Paul lays out for us in Romans chapter 10 for salvation. He said, if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and confess him as our Lord, we shall be saved. Well, are they, in, are they doing this? Did they meet those requirements? No question that they believe that he's raised from the dead. He's standing there in the midst of them. And the Bible says when they saw his side, saw his hands in his side, they rejoiced in the fact that he was the Lord. The, the wording indicates that they recognized him as Lord and Savior. Nobody would say or have a problem with making the statement that they've fulfilled the qualifications for salvation, would they? They believe everything they need to believe about Jesus and his resurrection. They recognize that he has to be Lord, and I'm sure that at the point that Jesus appears to them, one of the uh, gospel writers tells us that Jesus upbraided them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. They probably are reminded of the things that Jesus taught them plainly at the last part of his earthly ministry about going to Jerusalem and being killed and crucified and raised from the dead. So if Jesus said, receive you the Holy Spirit, and they didn't get something, then he had to be a partner to a lie. Well, that would nullify all of our belief in Jesus as the Son of God then, wouldn't it? My point is very simply this. How can Jesus express the salvation experience that they're entering into how could he say receive me he wouldn't breathe on them and say receive the gift of God receive me as Lord and Savior he identifies it as a work of the Holy Ghost but notice the next verse we read it in verse 22 no I'm sorry verse 23 he identifies the work of the Holy Ghost in them. He says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. He's talking about receiving the Holy Ghost in one sense. And that is the remission of sins. The remission of sins. Folks, we know that the Bible tells us in numerous places, Old Testament prophecies and New Testament explanations, that God's plan was to put a new spirit within us, take out the stony heart and give us a heart that's receptive to him, place a new spirit within us and then place his spirit in that new spirit of ours. You remember Jesus talked about the wine in the wineskins. He said, you can't put new wine in the old wineskins or old wine bottles because they'll burst and then the wine is spilled. That's a reference to him having to make us new spirits 
If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. One translation says a new species of being. Old things pass away and all things become new. So he has to recreate the human spirit. And what is that recreation of the human spirit if not a work of the Holy Ghost? And that's why Jesus breathes on him and says, receive you the Holy Ghost. But this is the same group that he tells to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the power. Look with me over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Let's just start in verse 1. The former treatise says, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach? Luke is a writer of the book of Acts, and he's saying, I wrote the gospel to set the stage for his earthly ministry, and this is the continuation of the work of God in the church age. The former treatise, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus is still giving credit to the Holy Ghost for being the originator of his words. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And while he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Well, that just makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck, doesn't it? Now, folks, Jesus is the gift given to the world. In other words, salvation is God's free gift to mankind. There are restrictions. Faith is required. Again, Paul told us exactly what we must believe and what we must confess. We must believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord in order to take hold of that free gift that's been given to the whole world. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 10 to tell us that people are saved through the foolishness of preaching because if you don't hear, you can't believe. Peter even says it this way. He says, we're born again by the incorruptible seed of God's word. Well, is it the word of God that really gets us saved? Well, it's the hearing of the word and the believing of the word and the confessing of Jesus as Lord that brings us into salvation. But Jesus in John chapter 20 called it receiving the Holy Ghost. Peter calls it being born again by the incorruptible seed of the word. John said it this way. He said, we know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. Well, where do we get that love? That's one of the characteristics of the recreated human spirit. The list of nine things over in Galatians chapter 5. The, three, the nine characteristics are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. Well, love is part of the, that list. It heads up the list. Where does that, lo that love come from? Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Well, when? At the new birth. When we're born again. So in Acts chapter 2, it tells us the fulfillment of these things. The power that we were, we the disciples were supposed to receive, beginning in verse 1, chapter 2 of Acts. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. 
Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice the evidence is the same as we see it 20 years later in Acts chapter 19. It says they, the 12 men and, and the women that were assembled, spake with other tongues and prophesied. Here it says they spake with other tongues. Now, folks, I have no doubt that the disciples told those people that were closest to them, people that may not have been in Jerusalem, people that may not have been there for the whole thing that happened with Jesus concerning his crucifixion or his resurrection. I have no doubt that the disciples were looking for people to tell the truth, the good news about Jesus being raised from the dead. They certainly didn't have a citywide meeting or anything like it turned into in Acts chapter 2. But they could certainly tell people what they knew. They see what happens with Thomas. If we kept reading in chapter 20, after the, the disciples saw Jesus, had him breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit, Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas was told by the disciples, here's an example. They're trying to tell somebody that didn't know and weren't present with them so that they can have the same thing that they had. Thomas can have the same thing that others had. But Thomas wouldn't believe. He said, unless I see the print of the nail in his hands and thrust my hand into his side where that Roman soldier stuck the spear, he said, I won't believe. He didn't say he couldn't believe. He said he wouldn't. So Jesus appears several days later and says to Thomas, he doesn't have to single anybody else out because the, the rest of them were there when he first appeared. But he says to Thomas, look at my hands. Put your hand in my side. If that's what it takes for you to believe, go ahead and do it. And Thomas confesses Jesus as Lord. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, Jesus says something interesting to Thomas. He said, because you have seen me, you believed. But blessed are those that believe without seeing. He didn't say there was any blessing on Thomas or for Thomas. Certainly, God didn't withhold salvation from him. He entered into the family of God through his willingness to believe finally. But the conditions of his believing were not the ones that God planned. And not the ones that bring blessing to mankind. So in the same way, anybody that the disciples might have come in contact with that didn't know about Jesus appearing and Jesus being raised from the dead, I have no doubt that they told as many people as they could. That probably didn't turn out to be a big number. But it was enough people to make it 120 over in Acts chapter 1 and 2. The disciples were 11. We know some of the women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were part of the company too. But there's about 100 people that we can't account for. The Bible also tells us in another place, one of the other gospel accounts, that Jesus appeared several times between his resurrection and the day of Pentecost. And in one case, it says more than 500 people saw him alive. Now, the, the language is a little difficult. There's no way to know for sure if it's saying over the period of time, 500 people or more saw Jesus when he made himself to appear. Or if it's saying that he appeared in front of a crowd that was more than 500 people. Either way, we know from the scripture that there were more than 500 people that saw him raised from the dead. There's 120 at the upper room. I've always wondered where the other 380 are. What do they have going that's more important than somebody being raised from the dead, like he said, somebody that showed himself clearly to be the Messiah, that did signs and wonders and miracles and healings like nobody else ever had done? Then they see him raised from the dead, but their lives are too busy to stay in track, stay with the others. So whatever sharing the disciples had done now when the day of Pentecost comes they receive power now remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 it says you'll receive power not you'll receive tongues he told them to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the spirit was given now what does that mean that means Jesus was given to the world before the Holy Ghost was given to the church and whatever benefit there is to Jesus being given to the world, which we know of as salvation or the born-again experience, 
the disciples took advantage of that. They participated in that. They entered into that before the power of the Holy Ghost came. But Acts chapter 2, now the Holy Ghost is poured out. Jesus is saying, wait until the Spirit is given. But once Acts chapter 2 takes place, the Spirit of God, or the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given. And there's no reason for anybody else to have to wait then or now. Now what happens? Well, in Acts chapter 2, it tells us after the experience of being filled with the Holy Ghost takes place, all 120 of them in, a, in the upper room are, are filled with the Spirit. Nobody's left out. It spills into the streets, and it creates quite a clamor. And some people begin to accuse the disciples of being drunk. And folks, I, I'm not going to try to tell you what this was, because I don't think I've got the whole story on it any more than anybody else does. But speaking with other tongues doesn't make you to appear drunk. I dare say that none of us could ever walk into a bar and find people that have had too much to drink and say, oh, that looks like the Holy Ghost. (laughs) So there has to be another effect on them. There has to be something taking place in Acts chapter 2 that goes beyond, if just a little bit beyond, the speaking with tongues. So Peter addresses the crowd and he says, first thing he says is these men are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. Peter's defense seems to be it's too early to get drunk, which is kind of a weak entry as far, weak introduction as far as I'm concerned. But nevertheless, he said, this is that which was spoken by Joel the prophet. And then he preaches just a very simple message. Very simple message. But the power of his preaching brings 300 people into the, or 3,000 people, excuse me, into the kingdom of God in that one day. Well, we certainly see from the results that there's additional power that they didn't have. We certainly see from what Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. That power includes... It's not exclusive, although they may not have known it at that point. But it includes power or anointing that brings people into the kingdom of God. But then in Acts chapter 3, and again, we don't know how long that was between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. The Bible implies that it was a short time, but there was a little bit of time, days at least, between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. But it tells us in Acts chapter 3 that Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer. They must have had a set time that they would go to pray. And they walked by a guy that they've seen numerous times before. Every time they walk through that beautiful gate of the temple, as it was called, they see this crippled guy. Long story short, Peter winds up ministering, healing to him. His feet and his ankle bones receive strength and he stands up and he's leaping and he's jumping around magnifying God because of the healing that takes place to bring him from being a cripple to restored health. Then Peter begins to preach again. He tells everybody plainly, it's not us. It's not our power. It's not our holiness. It's not because we're apostles or that we have some exclusive power because we were close to Jesus, which are the excuses most people give today or the explanations they try to make to explain away why things don't happen the same way, at least in their mind or in their thinking. Well, the apostles had something special. Peter said they didn't. Well, because of their relationship with God, they had a special place of holiness. Peter said they didn't. Now, I'm sure a lot of theologians nowadays know a lot better than Peter did, but Peter being the one that is experiencing this tells us that it wasn't any of those reasons. But he tells us what it was. He said it was the name of Jesus through faith in his name that has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Well, the Bible tells us as a result of that miracle and Peter preaching and talking about how the name of Jesus carries the same power now as it did when Jesus was here, doing the wonders and the signs and the miracles. 5,000 people get saved. So in the first two stories about the church, we've got 8,000 people that were saved. Add that to the 120 that they started with, that's a pretty good-sized church. 
in what we have to understand or expect to be a short period of time. Then we see some other things happening. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 tells us a little bit about Saul and his work in persecuting the church. Skip down with me to verse 4. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down unto the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. If you look up that Greek word give heed, it's one word in the Greek language that's translated give heed. It literally means attended to. It implies belief. It's not the word believe. But it implies belief because of the things that they witnessed. So they gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now it's going to tell us what miracles he performed. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. A couple of things you need to understand about this, folks. It doesn't say anybody else was healed. For example, it doesn't say any blind eyes were opened. And it says many that were taken with palsies were healed. That could imply that not everybody was. See, so often we get the idea that if God's really behind something, it covers everybody and everything. Well, there are times when that's true. Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth was not, did not have that experience. You remember because of the unbelief of the people, Jesus was not able to do any mighty work in that city. Doesn't say he wouldn't. In fact, he's just preached to the crowd in the synagogue that he was anointed of God to do these special works of healings and miracles. But he couldn't do anything in that city because of their unbelief. He tried to nullify that unbelief by going through their town's teaching in that area, but it never really does tell us if he got any better results than he started with. But the Bible magnifies the things that were done. Unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man named Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. That phrase, give heed, or gave heed, is the same one that we talked about earlier. Apparently, they've shifted their belief from Simon and his miracle works, or the things he claimed to be supernatural works, to believing in Philip after they saw the miracles being done. And to him they had regard because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Folks, I would submit to you that verse 12 tells us that the people of the city were saved. They entered into the born-again experience through Philip's ministry. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Verse 14, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them, notice the phrase, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Nothing to tarry for, nothing to wait for, because the Holy Ghost has already been given. And notice how he says it. Notice how the Holy Ghost refers to it, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. See, all there is is taking hold of it. The Holy Ghost has been given. We wouldn't tell anybody that came for salvation that they had to wait for anything, would we? We wouldn't tell anybody that came for salvation that they had to pray or tarry, or fast, or anything else for that matter, to get God to provide salvation for them, because that gift's already been given. Jesus is the gift of the world when he hung on the cross as a substitute for your sins and mine. In the same way, there's nothing to wait for concerning the baptism of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. He's already been given. He was given on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, and from that time since he was given to the, to the church, now the only criteria for being filled with the Holy Ghost 
is to be a part of the family of God and to believe that you receive. And that's what they did. They prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. The Bible is very specific on the way that it says some of these things, folks. Even if we don't choose to say it the same way, the Bible is real specific. Who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's saying nobody had been filled with the Holy Ghost. Here in the Bible, this verse of Scripture talks about the Holy Ghost having fallen. Well, really, it had not fallen on any of them. Only they had entered into salvation. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Same thing. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, what about the evidence of these guys? If they got the same infilling of the Holy Ghost that the rest of them did, and that we did, they ought to have the same evidence, shouldn't they? And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Now he's calling him a gift. He's calling the Holy Ghost a gift. But he's a gift to those that have been born again, not to the world. Just like Jesus said. Now, let me ask you a question, folks. If there wasn't some kind of evidence, what is Simon trying to buy? He's not trying to buy the Holy Ghost. He's trying to buy the ability, the supernatural ability to lay hands on people so that they might be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, Simon is basically a con man. He's a con man that gets saved. We're glad of that. But you know as well as I do that if there wasn't some kind of evidence that identified or proved whether or not someone had received the Holy Ghost, then he could just go claim to have the same thing without ever offering anybody any money. But Peter cuts him off. He says, your money perish with you because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. The gift of God here he's talking about is not the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He's talking about the supernatural ability to lay hands on people and then receive the Holy Spirit. That's what Simon's trying to buy. Notice verse 21. Peter is saying, thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. You know what that word matter is? It's the word utterance. Thou hast no part nor lot in this matter. It's the same word or a form of the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. They were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Notice again, we've got the same thing. We've got a dual working of the Holy Spirit. We have a Holy Spirit doing a work inside them, inside of the people in Samaria. And then we have the Holy Ghost coming upon them, just like the disciples, just like the ones that were Assembled behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, Jesus' disciples. First they were saved, then they were empowered when the Holy Ghost was given. Now turn back with me to John chapter 14. Let me show you something else real quick here. John chapter 14, I want to read verses 16 and 17 again, but I want to go a little bit further this time. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Thank God he never leaves. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, the unsaved in other words, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I want you to notice, folks, the dual working of the Holy Spirit, first in salvation and then in, in the endowment of power. It's the same Spirit. The Holy Ghost is not twins. I remember when we first started traveling, when we left Brother Hagin's ministry and first started traveling, we wound up, uh, well, actually, we preached there a couple of times, but I think it was the first time that we were there in uh, uh, somewhere in northern Michigan. And there was a, uh, a couple there that had a, a small church, small town, small church, and real good people, just salt-of-the-earth kind of people. 
they would be what I would call kind of country folks. But that was all right. They lived out in the country, so that wouldn't make sense. But there was a lady that was a part of their church. And this lady was in her late 80s, if I remember right. Something like 88 years old. And she had been seeking the baptism of the Holy Ghost for 50 years. 50 years. Now, folks, I admire her desire that she stayed with it for 50 years. But what a tragedy that nobody knew how to lead her into the baptism of the Spirit. So we talked to her. There had been a lot of people that had prayed for her. The pastor and his wife had prayed for her a number of times. Everybody in this town, everybody in the surrounding area knew who this woman was. I have never met somebody that was so full of the love of God in my life. I mean, she just dripped love. And so the pastor asked her if she wanted to be prayed for to be filled with the Spirit. The service was already over and people were just kind of standing around, fellowshipping and so forth. And she said yes. She was reluctant, but she said yes. And I guess she was reluctant because she tried so many times. She's probably getting discouraged, you know. But anyway, she said yes. So I talked with her just very briefly, told her some scriptures that the Bible speaks of, where, uh, like, for example, in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus said, if, you, uh, if your son asked you for a, a um, piece of bread, would you give him a stone? If he asked you for a fish, would you give him a serpent? Of course not. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So I shared with her a couple of things, just a few things to help her put her faith on. Not long, just five minutes. Talked with her maybe five minutes. And then I laid hands on her. And she started to stammer just very quietly. She was real soft-spoken anyway. I guess people that age are anyhow. But she began to stammer a little bit. And then I encouraged her. I said, that's it, ma'am. Just go ahead and speak that out. That's the Holy Ghost. And she began to speak in other tongues. And she continued for, I don't know, 10 minutes. And most everybody that was left, not a whole lot of people were, but the ones that were left knew her situation, knew who she was and that kind of thing. And so everybody's just standing around crying and happy for her and all that kind of stuff. And then I, I tried to give her some more instructions, so I asked her to stop. I wanted her to see that she could start and stop whenever she wanted to. Because uh, especially in rural places, not everybody has that knowledge. And so I asked her, I said, do you know that you spoke in something that, in a language that wasn't your own? And she said, yes. Yes, I know that. And then she said this. I'll never forget this. She said, I have not grieved the Holy Ghost. In other words, she said that same spirit that she's born of, that same spirit that brought her into fellowship and brought her into the family of God, she recognized that this was the same spirit and that she hadn't done something contrary to the work of God or the plan of God for her life. She recognized instantly, maybe better than most everybody we know, that it was the same spirit, just a different working of, the, of that same spirit. And folks, that's exactly how it is. The Holy Ghost is not twins. There's not one spirit you get when you get born again. And a different spirit that you get when you are filled with the Holy Ghost. It's the same spirit, just a different work. Just a different work. Let me keep reading here. I'll start over in verse 16. And I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter. That he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But you see me because I live. You shall live also. At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. Let me skip down to verse 26. He said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost... Whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you. Notice that phrase where Jesus said he'll teach you all things. He will teach you all things. Let me compare it to something that John wrote to the church. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20. John said, but you have an unction from the Holy One. And you know all things. This word unction is the word anointing. 
And he says that because of the anointing, or which we understand he's got to be talking about the power of the Holy Ghost. When he says we have an unction from the Holy One, he's talking about the same thing that he refers to later. Chapter 5, he says, whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. Well, how do we overcome the world? By the greater one that lives in us. So that's what he's referring to here too. He says, you have an unction or an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Look to verse 27. But the anointing, same word. Unction and anointing are the same words. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you. Well, what for? And you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even, it is, even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. You remember when Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. In other words, God wants you to get answers to your prayer. He wants you to receive the things that you lay claim to that were purchased by the blood of Jesus and the substitutionary work of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. When he's talking about those things, he's talking about the anointing, the power of the Holy Ghost that's in us. And the reference he makes to the power of the Holy Ghost is in teaching us. Folks, I want you to understand something. Every one of us have the teacher on the inside of us. Now, when he says we don't need anybody to teach us, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to good teaching. It doesn't mean we don't need to be a part of a church family where we can be taught and can be instructed in the Scripture. He's saying that he'll teach us all things to show us the difference between right and wrong. We don't need to ask anybody else if someone else is right. We don't need to find out if this minister or this ministry or this work or that work is of God. Those are things that the Holy Ghost will share with you individually. Those are things that the Holy Ghost will lead you and guide you into. He'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance the Word of God. Folks, if we'll fellowship with God through His Word, He'll bring that Word back to us to give us the answers to the things we need in life. Most of the time it seems to me that Christians live in a, an arm's length type fellowship with God and then when things turn around in their life to where they don't know what to do, then they'll go to extremes to find out. They'll go chase after this counselor or that counselor or this ministry or that ministry. They'll go to extremes like fasting for some unreal period of time to try to get answers from God about what to do. Now, folks, don't get me wrong. I've had some wonderful experiences with fasting. But those experiences I've had have always been as a result of the Holy Ghost prompting me to fast. It's kind of funny. Several years ago, there was a, a, a period of time that I decided to fast. I felt like I was being led by the Holy Ghost to do it. And it was the easiest thing that I ever did. I wound up going just under two weeks, got the answers, got the information that I was looking for from the Lord, maybe kept it going for another couple of days just for the sake of, help, of, of weight loss. Not spiritual purpose, but, what, but physical purpose. But it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life. I know that sounds weird, and I never would have thought that I could have something like that. But it was great. It was just fabulous. And then about a year ago, I decided to tune up a little bit. And so I was going to fast. I didn't make it half a day. <laughs> and there was only one difference. And that difference was the, the greater one on the inside of me. Whether or not I was doing it for my, say, my, my own sake. Or whether I was doing it because I was being led by him. We have that unction. From the Holy Ghost and we know all things. We have that anointing that teaches us. That's what John was telling us that Jesus said at the Last Supper. He'll teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Thank God for the Holy Ghost within. We know him. We have a witness of the Holy Ghost. We can be led of the Holy Ghost because we're children of God. And thank God for the Holy Ghost upon us. That equips us for service. It empowers us to say the right things at the right time to the right people in the right circumstance. He helps us. He provides for us instruction so that we know how to deal wisely in the affairs of life. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Let's pray.
Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your gift to the world, which is Jesus. But Father, we also thank you for your gift unto us, your children, which is the Holy Ghost. We thank you that the Holy Ghost leads us and guides us. He guides us into all truth. He guides us into all reality. Holy Ghost, we trust you to be our teacher. We trust in that unction, that power, that anointing that settles us in the the truth of the word, that anchors us with our hope that we gain from you. Father, we thank you that the Holy Ghost guides us into the reality of what Jesus has done for us to help us see like we've never seen before so that we can be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, and you are quickening our mortal bodies by the presence, your presence, within us and upon us. Thank you, Father, for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.